Hello, and thank you very much for tuning in to the Beyond Britain podcast, the student show where I, Harry Talfan, talk to politicians, university professors, and field experts about Britain's standing in the world. Whether it's our international development programmes, our relations with world superpowers, or the consequences of Brexit, I hope on this podcast it will be discussed. Today, I am honoured to be joined by the Right Honourable Hilary Benn MP. Serving Leeds Central since 1999, Hilary Benn has served for Labour as both a Secretary of State for International Development and Shadow Foreign Secretary. Regarded by his parliamentary colleagues as both a brilliant orator and expert in international affairs, I cannot think of a better guest to have on today. In today's episode, we discuss everything from the situation in Ukraine, international development funding and the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan. I will say in advance, there were a few technical problems with this episode, but that's okay. You know, I'm learning as I go and I really enjoyed speaking to Hillary. Anyway, I'll stop waffling now. Thank you once again for listening. Hilary Ben, thank you very much for joining me. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I thought we could just jump straight into the unfolding situation in Ukraine. Obviously, as you know, forces are amassing across the border. Um, they have been for a considerable period now. Boris described the intelligence on Monday as pretty gloomy. Um, do you think the Western nations, with their threats of economic sanctions, have actually done enough to try and deter Russia? Well, that is the big question. Uh, Ukraine, of course, is not a NATO member, so there is no question of NATO forces going into Ukraine and potentially having to confront the Russians if they choose to invade. And that's why the strength of our response in the form of economic sanctions is so important, because that is seeking to affect the calculation that President Putin is making. And I asked the Prime Minister about this in the House when he made his statement this week. And we know, for example, that Germany has an issue with gas supplies because it's 40% dependent on gas from Russia. So if President Putin were to respond to sanctions by then cutting off gas, that is extremely serious uh, for Germany. There's also been debate about whether Russia should be excluded from the SWIFT system, which is the method used uh, to make payments internationally and the prime minister told me well told the house that that was still being discussed with the americans um so i think it's important that we have as united a european position as possible to send the clearest message possible that there will be very strong economic sanctions if he does invade uh, which will affect russia and its people Um, What is President Putin going to do? I do not know. And he wrote an article in the summer in which he set out why he thinks that Ukraine is really part of Mother Russia. And it, I'm sorry to say, it reminds me of the arguments that the Nazis used when they decided they were going to, in effect, march into Austria in 1938 to produce Anschluss, as they called it, the uniting of of Germany and Austria. And I have no doubt that if he does choose to invade, um, the Ukrainians are going to resist because this is about their independence. And the demands that President Putin has made of the West, um, none of these countries that aren't in NATO can 
possibly be allowed to join it. Well, that go, runs completely contrary to the principle of the NATO alliance, which is independent, free, democratic countries can make their own choices, which countries like um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania um, have done. And NATO presents no threat to Russia. President Putin cannot argue with any credibility whatsoever that the West is planning to invade Russia because that is complete nonsense. NATO is a defensive alliance. Absolutely. I just wanted to pick up on that that previous point you made about the what we all want is European unity on this issue. Um, I just wonder what you've made then of sort of, uh, we've sort of seen Germany um, refusing Estonia's transfer of artillery into Ukraine, uh, artillery that's originated in Germany. Um, and we've also, you know, there was some initial talk that British planes were having to fly around Germany because um, the Germans didn't want them in their airspace if they were taking uh, weapons to Ukraine. And Macron sort of spent some of his time, it seemed, undermining NATO a bit. So I just wonder why you think there's been this sort of, even though we all want to aim for unity in Europe, there's been a bit of a trouble achieving it. Well, France has always historically had an interesting relationship uh, with NATO. But I think, look, in the case of Germany, Germany is heavily uh, dependent. If... if if we were a country where 40% of our gas supplies, it's winter, heating our homes, was dependent on Russia and Russia could potentially turn off the tap, you can see why any government would be extremely anxious about this and maybe saying to itself, we don't want to do anything that will um, seek to provoke uh, Russia. And yet the best hope we have of dissuading President Putin from going ahead with an invasion is the sure and certain knowledge that he will be met by a very strong, united, European and Western response, if that's what he chooses to do in the end. And I'm sure there is a debate in, in Germany also about the stance that has been taken. Um, I think it is only reasonable to provide defensive uh, weapons to the Ukrainians. That's what they've been asking for. And they're weapons that are only used in the event that they are attacked by Russia. Absolutely. And, and I think you're talking, talking there sort of about the importance of the issue. Um, and I just wonder what you make of this argument we sort of still see from some um, mostly American pundits, but it's this idea that um, this isn't really, it's nothing to do with us. You know, the West is again risking war for the sake of what they describe Ukraine as sort of a state of democracy. And I just wondered if you could sort of describe why this is such an important issue with, you know, China probably watching on, um, thinking about Taiwan. Yeah. I think for the very simple reason, if we haven't learned from history, that if you allow uh, dictators and bullies to seize territory, because they think they can do it without responding in any way. And that is, of course, remembering that Ukraine is not a NATO member. So the Article 5 commitment to um, support any NATO members who is attacked doesn't apply here. Then the people, the countries that do that will say, well, OK, we've well, started now. Perhaps I can take some more territory. And that is exactly what happened if you look at the 1930s in Europe with the disputed territory, first of all, between 
France and Germany arising out of the end of the First World War, and then the Sudetenland, and then Austria, and then the Blitzkrieg uh, invasion of large parts of the rest of Europe by Hitler, because he thought he could do it and he could win. And, and therefore, I think we have a responsibility to do everything that we can, prudently and sensibly, recognizing that there are not going to be NATO troops fighting in Ukraine. Everybody recognizes that. To do everything else that we can to try and dissuade President Putin from doing this and to use the opportunity of, of talks. Okay, well, let's talk about um, arms control. Let's talk about better information on military exercises and maneuvers. There are things that have been that can be discussed, which NATO has indicated it would be willing to talk to the Russians uh, about, but we are not going to accept uh, him threatening Ukraine in this way to try and persuade NATO to accept conditions that President Putin knows are complete non-starters. Yeah, and of course, you mentioned there sort of the, the ridiculous nature of his expectations for the West. And you also make those comparisons to the 1930s. So I guess from that, do you do you believe that this this move, if, if it occurs, is basically just motivated by his selfish, narcissistic desires? Or do you have any sympathy with this idea that Russia is bound to be paranoid as NATO's continued to expand into the East? Well, if you look back at Russia's history... And you could see the two great invasions from the West, Napoleon, and of course, Nazi Germany, when having signed the, the pact between Russia and Germany, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact in 1939, the Nazis then decided to tear that up and invade Russia. And we have to remember and we have to acknowledge the enormous loss of life that Russia experienced in the Second World War, defending itself against the Nazis when we were in alliance with Russia. Russia was in alliance with the UK, the US and the other allies who were fighting um, Adolf Hitler. So they understand and remember their history. But having said that, Nobody could look at the current um, deployment of forces in Europe, in NATO, and think that this somehow was a build-up to an incursion into Russian territory. Uh, President Putin knows perfectly well that that is not the case. The, the troops that we've sent to Estonia, for example, as Britain, are there to try and dissuade him in case he has any idea of moving in on those uh, Baltic countries. And it's important that we keep talking. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're, we're all hoping for a, um, a peaceful resolution. Let's look a little bit further eastward now towards Afghanistan. Um, we've seen Gordon Brown recently describing the situation as essentially the West sleepwalking into the biggest humanitarian crisis of our times. What, what do you make of the Western response to this issue so far? Well, it is an, an enormous humanitarian crisis because the Afghan economy has collapsed. Um, it can't pay the wages of public servants. People haven't got money to buy food. It's winter. And aid has 
been suspended and uh, the new regime, the Taliban, have been denied access to their foreign exchange reserves. And there is a there is a dilemma because on the one hand, the character of the Taliban regime, where well, we know them of old, and their PR may be better than it was 20 years ago, but there are tests that we should rightly apply when it comes to things like uh, recognition. Uh, there is a basic human right that I believe in, you believe in, we believe in, that all children should have the opportunity to go to school. And I'm afraid it is not acceptable under any circumstances to say that half the next generation of Afghanistan girls and women should be denied that right. On the other hand, you cannot pub punish a population for the failures and misdeeds of its leaders. And that is why the world responding to the UN humanitarian appeal is so important. Because, you know, we've learned from last time another lesson of history. When the Taliban were in power previously, several million people fled Afghanistan. They went to Pakistan, they went to Iran, some came out elsewhere. And when the Taliban were deposed in 2001, many of those people, not all, but many of those people returned to Afghanistan because they saw a safer future with the possibility of, of prosperity and opportunity. And if the humanitarian crisis unfolds in the way we fear, then we should not be surprised if there is another great movement of people and those people will need to be fed and housed and looked after, given health care, the children provided with education. And we have a, I agree with Gordon completely, we have a moral responsibility to provide humanitarian assistance to the people that we had been working with for 20 years in trying to help them to build a new uh, stable state. Um, now that failed for a whole host of reasons that we could go into. But our responsibility to the people of the country remains. Um, and I think it's an obligation that we have to fulfill. And you were just talking about um, what Gordon Brown said there. Another thing he said in that same article with The Guardian was um, what tens of thousands of people trying to flee on evacuation flights before last troops pulled out signaled the end of the notion that allies could impose liberal Western values overnight in other countries. Uh, do you agree with that other point he's made there, as well as the, um, the plea for people to engage with the humanitarian issue? Well, I think the number of people who are desperate to get out was proof that something valuable and important had happened in Afghanistan, namely a government, elections, uh, education for all children, girls as well as boys, and the possibility of a better life. And those people who were desperate to get out knew that in some cases the Taliban was going to come for them, and we've seen that since the evacuation flights ended. Um, people who'd worked to establish the rule of law, judges, women judges, uh, politicians, human rights organization, women's defenders, uh, the Afghan uh, women's football team. Uh, and they knew that something very, very important was about to be lost. And that's why they were so desperate to escape. 
uh, because they knew what the Taliban are and what they do and what their record is and what their ideology is that is uh, inimical to the type of Afghanistan that was trying to be created. Secondly, you, of course, you can't impose a uh, democracy because democracy is about both the institutions, um, elections, um, a multi-party system, people being free to stand. But it's also about the comes with it. And one of the most important um, bits of a democratic culture is that you stand for election and sometimes you lose and you may be in office and then you're kicked out. And accepting that is absolutely fundamental to making um, democracy work. And I remember some years ago, I was uh, visited by a group of officials from Russia when I was the prisons minister. And we were talking about how prisons are overseen. And I explained that we had the chief inspector of prisons in the United Kingdom who produced reports that were often extremely critical of the prisons they had visited and therefore of the government and therefore of me as the Minister for Prisons and Probation. And a, a, a troubled look passed across their faces and they said to me, but, but how can be someone who you appoint who criticises you so? Can't you just get rid of them? And I then had to explain that in our democracy, no, you can't do that. And you have an independent prisons inspector and you accept that they will act independently. And if you tried to do that, you'd have the press and parliament to deal with. And so I found myself explaining the democratic culture of accountability in the United Kingdom that wasn't anything like as simple as saying, if an official does something that you don't like, you as the minister or the government can tell them, that's it, I'm going to replace you with somebody else. And that takes time. And, you know, when I, as the development secretary, would be talking to other governments, countries that we were providing development assistance to about, for example, tackling corruption, because dealing with corruption, and that certainly was an issue in Afghanistan, is so important to a making a, a democracy function. It took us years. And I would sometimes say, uh, as I said, tackling corruption is really important. I said, look, as in some cases, your former imperial uh, power, the reason that I am um, encouraging you so much on this is we made every mistake in the book in Britain. We had corruption. We had civil war. We killed the king. Uh, our democracy took a long time to, to develop. And I just don't want it to take you as long as it took us to um, to tackle these things, because otherwise one would feel a little bit, given our history and the fact that it took us so long, those presidents and prime ministers might be sitting there and say, why is this man giving me a lecture when I know exactly what uh, England and the UK's uh, history is? Absolutely. And I think you, you spoke uh, you spoke really well there about the, the length of time it can take for these things to come to fruition and to create real development in, in these places. So given, you know, on a, on a scale compared to Britain, we there weren't troops in Afghanistan for that long. I just wonder whether whether you feel that this was all preventable. I've I noticed in your um, on your parliamentary website, you were very careful to propose that it may 
both be true that NATO forces couldn't remain forever, but that Biden's withdrawal was possibly questionable in a few ways. And I just wondered on balance of both of these truths, what's your sort of reflective verdict? You know, do you share the view that 2000 American troops and some air support was a worthwhile price to let them continue this this path to what you've been describing? I think, it, no, I think it would have been because it was the signal that that sent, the precipitate withdrawal and the air cover. Because if you think about it from the point of view of the Afghan National Army, now we, as the international community, spent a very large amount of money training uh, the Afghans to take responsibility for their own security. But if, as we know from our own experience of fighting the Taliban, when you're in a hole, having the ability to call up air cover that the Taliban do not have is extremely important. And the moment those Afghan troops realize there isn't going to be any air cover we can call up anymore, and they looked at the what was happening, and they looked at the deals were being done village by village, town by town, as people said, well, it looks like the Taliban are coming up the back, so let's reach some sort of agreement. You could see why they said to themselves, well, what are we fighting for now? And it was not a great uh, commitment. And the fact that that withdrawal happened so precipitately led to the speed of the Taliban's advance, which then led to the scenes we saw at the airport. Um, and all of the problems that have uh, transpired. Having said that, the Taliban are now in control and they now must take responsibility for the state of their own country. But I thought from there we could just turn to look a little bit at Britain's standing in the world at the moment. Um, yeah. You know, we're in a post-Brexit situation. I've sort of seen you dismiss the concept of global Britain that the Brexiteers have, uh, have put forward. Uh, now that we have Brexited, um, where do you see Labour putting its position for Britain's a way forward in Brexit? You know, do you share the view of um, figures such as Andrew Donis that say this can only be achieved really through rejoining? Or do you share more of the view of Tony Blair where it's we now must find the answers to address the effects of Brexit because it's here? I think it is politically unrealistic to suggest that somehow Labour at the next election would fight on a platform to rejoin the EU. And one of the ways of, of making that crystal clear is, uh, I would argue, if anyone were advancing that policy, of course, you'd have to commit to another referendum and then ask everyone in the room, hands up if you think we should fight the next general election as Labour seeking to beat Boris Johnson with a commitment to hold another referendum on membership of the European Union. And I think that's what's known as a self-answering question. Um, and therefore, what we have to do is to turn our minds to the new question that confronts us. And that is, Brexit has happened, it's done, but we're still 22 miles apart across the Channel, Dover to Calais. Europe is still a very significant trading partner of ours. We are allies. We are friends. The problem is that Brexit has made it more difficult for businesses in the UK and also in the European Union to trade with each other and to trade with our respective countries. Um, and so the question is, how do we build a new, different economic relationship that addresses those obstacles. So I'm about practicalities. 
Um, look, um, there's a huge rumpus going on in the musical, artistic and theatre industry because of the obstacles that the absence of an agreement that enables artists to go and tour has um, created as a result of Brexit. So I'd be saying to the European Union, look, can't we reach an agreement that British artists, performers could go and perform in Europe and European artists and performers and singers can come and perform in the United Kingdom? Wouldn't that be a jolly good idea? Because, you know, the, the music and artistic industry is an extraordinary British success story. Absolutely you know, world leading. We have so much talent. And the government's Brexit deal has made it more difficult for that great British success story to prosper. Because as we know, Brexit is the first time in, or certainly British history, a government's gone into a trade negotiation knowing for sure that it will come out with the worst deal that it went in with, which is why Brexit was such a bad idea. But that decision has been made and that uh, vote is over. Take another example. Um, the movement of food products and veterinary checks. We ought to be able to reach a veterinary agreement with the European Union that says, look, we are in all basic respects still producing food to the standard required by the rules of the EU because we've been a member for such a long time. Do we really need to be checking each other's food as it moves across the borders? Because that would make life easier. You've got the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a very particular issue where I hope desperately that progress can be made. Now, the circumstances there are different because the one thing everyone in the negotiations agreed on was that under no circumstances could there be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And therefore, uh, if if you're going to be sure that goods that do not meet the requirements of the single market uh, can't enter the Republic and therefore onward to France, Germany or Greece, um, you either had the whole of the UK abiding by, in effect, the rules of the single market or just Northern Ireland. And Boris Johnson, having promised he would never agree to the latter when he became prime minister, that's what he signed up to. He negotiated line by line the Northern Ireland Protocol, and now he says it doesn't work. Um, having said that, it is creating difficulties. And to start with, the EU was seeking to interpret it in a way that I think is not uh, sustainable. Take the classic example. A Sainsbury's uh, lorry load of food goes from uh, across the Irish Sea to a Sainsbury's in Belfast. You might have, I don't know, 300 food product lines in the lorry. And the EU's starting position was every single one of those items must have an export health certificate at 150, 180 pounds a time. Well, what actually is the risk that those sandwiches and chicken tikka masalas and uh, uh, steaks are actually going to get into Ireland and undermine the integrity of the single market? Well, they're not. I mean, the worst that can happen is someone drives from Donegal to Derry, buys a chicken sandwich and takes it home and puts it in the fridge or a, um, a cut of meat goes into the freezer. This is not a risk. 
And the protocol accepted that the parties had to reach a way of distinguishing between goods that will move from GB to Northern Ireland and stay there, in which case, if you're sure they're going to stay there, you don't really need to check them, do you? Um, and goods that might move on to the European Union. And that's why we need a, a, a pragmatic way forward. And what I'm interested in is building a new relationship bit by bit, step by step. And if you look at Norway's relationship with the European Union um, or Ukraine's, the EU has been prepared to offer a closer economic relationship to countries that are not members of the European Union. But of course, in those cases, they were hoping to encourage those members to move towards the EU. Uh, the difference with the United Kingdom is we've just taken a huge decision to leave it. But there's no reason why that shouldn't happen in the future, because in the end, it makes sense. It's in the interests of both parties, both sets of economies, because nobody wants extra cost and bureaucracy and delay of the sort we're seeing at the moment uh, in Dover with the lorries queuing up the M20. But for that to happen, you have to have a different political relationship. And the, um, the problem with Boris Johnson is he continues to think that having a punch up with the EU is good politics for him. That, that's sort of what I was going to go directly on to. We, we've seen um, Macron's comments uh, towards uh, the prime minister, which have been damning, to say the very least. Uh, the suspicion from Merkel's autobiographer that the comments in her upcoming book are going to be pretty negative as well. Do you think this progress that you're sort of alluding to can actually be made under this current government? Well, I desperately hope so. And I, I would say since Lord Frost's departure, uh, Liz Truss has set a different tone. Uh, and I welcome that because I believe that it is possible to find a way out of this but it will require both sides to compromise and that includes the european union so i'm not talking to you today and saying well i back the eu and imposing full controls on everything because i think that is a not a credible position for the eu to take and i think that stance which you could say was the original position completely fails to understand the delicate politics of northern ireland when you're talking about the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, it sort of reminds me of a, a, an issue that I think you can see throughout British politics at the moment. And you can sort of see the rise of the SNP um, and their rhetoric around leaving the British Union. Um, but Plaid Cymru's case for an independent Wales is 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 slow, slowly strengthening, but strengthening. Obviously, we've had Brexit. Where does this sort of withdrawal politics come from in Britain? What do you think motivates it? But what we have learned about Brexit, Scottish independence, uh, Donald Trump's success in America, is that these causes um, are more about identity than they are about um, economic calculation. Because I don't think anybody could credibly argue now or before that Brexit was going to be economically beneficial to the United Kingdom. Uh, it's not. The Office for Budget Responsibility has said quite clearly it's going to have a bring a 4% hit to GDP. And at a time when we face great challenges, we need a strong economy and we need to pay for the health service. We need to pay for the zero carbon transition. To damage your economy in that way uh, really doesn't make sense. 
But ultimately, I met lots of people during the course of the referendum who said to me, look, I don't care what economic hit we take, my sovereignty is more important. And I suppose that then takes us to the question you asked previously about Britain and the world. Because I would say this about sovereignty. Um, I can make you sovereign, Harry. I, I don't know what room you're sitting in, but I could uh, ask everyone else who's in the room, if there is anyone with you, to leave. We could shut the door. And in that room, you would be completely sovereign. No one could tell you what to do. You would have complete control of your own destiny and your decisions. But where does that get you? And the answer is not very far. Because what is the best way to exercise sovereignty in the interests of your citizens? It is to work with others to protect yourself and to advance your interests and your economy. That you know, We're members of NATO because that's about protecting ourselves in an alliance. We were members of the European Union, the Single Market and the Customs Union, because it was economically uh, beneficial. And in the modern world, you need allies and partners to assist you to come together to be able to exercise that sovereignty. So it's, it's not a, a dry theoretical academic concept. It's what will you do with your sovereignty that really uh, matters. And that's why uh, I think Britain's position in the world and the perception of Britain in the world has been weakened because lots of countries have looked at Britain and said, gosh, I thought you were, you know, sensible and you've and you've done this. Well, what on earth did you do that for? And we, we were in this fantastic position. We were members of the European Union, leading members. We were really good at getting our way. That's the other part of the story that is um, mistold by those who argued for Brexit. It was not a case that we were being um, rolled over all the time. We were hugely influential in Europe uh, for a whole host of reasons. We're still members of the uh, UN Security Council. Uh, obviously, we have the Commonwealth. And that gave us lots of different ways in which we could exercise our sovereignty. And we have weakened our ability in one respect by leaving the European Union. And it surprised me enormously that in the negotiations, the government didn't say to the EU, we'd like to continue with some formalised form of foreign policy cooperation, because foreign policy cooperation in the EU was always about unanimity. It was never any question of qualified majority voting. You would agree a stance by unanimity. And that is very important, because if Europe speaks with one voice, including the United Kingdom, that gives you more weight and heft in the world than if we are divided. And I, I bet you the morning after the referendum result was announced, President Putin would have woken up and thought, hmm, right. Well, that's Europe weaker, uh, Russia stronger. Absolutely. I think, you know, given this is a, a podcast about Britain and its relationships abroad, that point about responsible sovereignty is a really good one to end on. So I'll just uh, I'll thank you very much for coming on. I've got one more question for you because I had to ask you a sort of trivial, uh, fun one. Given ah. the uh, current predicament, you're 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 known as a, a brilliant orator. I wonder whether you could just finish up uh, by summing up your thoughts on the current situation of the prime minister with both Sue Gray and the Metropolitan Police Service. Well, what, what a state um, the Prime Minister has brought the country to. We've, we've touched on in our discussion climate change, 
development, uh, humanitarian crises, trade, climate change, um, the movement of people around the world, which is going to be one of the defining features of this century, which is another argument for working together to solve the problems of the world. And I think it's made us a laughing stock, frankly, a laughing stock. And if the man who set the rules is trying to argue, well, nobody told me exactly what the rules were, then I think we've come to a, a pretty pass. And I, I also think the attempt to hide the truth, to obfuscate, um, means that an increasing number of people say, I just don't believe what the Prime Minister says. And you can't really have a democracy in a country where the person who occupies this really important position has, from my point of view, no credibility left anymore. Now, ultimately, whether he stays or goes will be a matter for the Grey Report, the police investigation, but, but for Conservative MPs. Now, no one can pretend that Conservative MPs didn't know about the character of the Prime Minister when they elected him. He, and the, Boris Johnson has a long career and uh, and we know what that has entailed, but they voted for him because they thought he would be a winner. And he won the 2019 election and gave the Tories a big majority. The moment Tory MPs come to the conclusion that he is no longer a winner, but a liability, uh, he will be gone. And I hope for the sake of the country, and that happens sooner rather than later.